Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we're not. What? <laughs> I thought you were trying to interrupt me. And I was like, oh, what's wrong? We better restart. What's going on? I was giving you appropriately uh, scary background music. There, yeah. Josh. All right. So. All right. Now I know we're gonna, what we're doing. Let's, uh, let's, let's, <laughs> let's go again. Here we go. <laughs> Welcome to Awesome uh, Movie Year, uh, the not, podcast where we uh, take no, a look no, back no, no. at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. <laughs> And I've been eaten by a shark. Oh, no. <laughs> My name is Josh Pell, <laughs> film critic and writer. And I am here in the water with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, first mate of the Orca. <laughs> All right. So uh, what does uh, that musical accompaniment mean? Well, we are here at the premiere of our 15th season is that right jason uh i think it is it 15 or 14 dave i don't 15th know 15th season, season. Oh. amazing we're here at the premiere of our 15th Whew. season to talk about the movies of 1975 a landmark year really in cinema history and we are beginning as always with the box office champion and this is a landmark film in terms of the development of the blockbuster it is steven spielberg's jaws Perfect timing coming out right at summer, you know, listen to us on the beach. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you see a shark warning, don't, don't, don't go in the water. Yeah, <laughs> just listen to awesome movie here instead. Some of these, some of these towns need your summer dollars, but we are here for you to tell you don't get eaten by a shark. Yes, that is our public service. Thankfully here in Las Vegas, no sharks in Lake Mead, I don't think, although Maybe if the water level goes down enough, there's a whole uh, shark reef exhibit. <laughs> That's so, you true. Know. I don't think the sharks in the shark reef exhibit are going to eat anyone, though. They're they're in an aquarium. I mean, you could create a movie where like a supervillain, you know, sucks them in <laughs> via some type of uh, salt water cannon and then shoots them at people. Sure, that's, I've seen enough ridiculous shark movies that I 100 percent believe yeah. that could be a film. shark cannon yeah there you go um, <laughs> and all of that stuff really began with this film it is the origin of so many bad shark movies but this is a good shark movie um it was hugely successful at the time it was released of course it was the number one film at the box office in 1975 it grossed 132 million dollars worldwide on that initial release and over time, including all the various re-releases, it has grossed $476.5 on its budget of $9 million, which was an expanded budget. This was a movie that went over long and over budget, and they ended up spending a lot more on it than they initially anticipated, but money well spent, probably. Yeah, I mean, look, we did 77, talked about Star Wars, and I think we even mentioned it there. And we talked about Close Encounters also, but this was the the birth of the modern blockbuster. Yeah. I mean, this along with Star Wars are really kind of the two pillars of that, as we did talk about, I think, in our Star Wars episode. And prior to the release of Star Wars, this movie held the record as the highest grossing movie of all time from its release until the release of Star Wars. So for about two years or so, it was not only incredibly successful at the box office. But the other way that it kind of birthed the blockbuster was it was one of the first movies to get a nationwide release, which was not something that was really done before this. Movies would open in like New York and LA and then expand across the country over time. 
And this movie opened, and I think it was 450 screens, which now, if a movie opens on 450 screens, yeah, that's a small release. But at the time, that was unheard of. Right. This is, you know, like the blueprint for so many things, marketing, tie-ins, toys, you know, ancillary revenue streams. And uh, it it is a worthy uh, historical film because it's still great. Yeah, I think this is one of the first movies to have an extensive TV advertising campaign, which is sort of unbelievable to me because it's not like TV wasn't uh, a big deal prior to 1975. But I guess maybe the movies didn't feel like it was uh, a major part of their uh, marketing. I don't know. I don't know either. I wasn't on the marketing team or alive back then. nor, Nor was I. So this was also an acclaimed film. It won a ton of awards, including three Oscars. It won the Oscar for Best Film Editing, Best Original Score, and Best Sound. And it was also nominated for Best Picture. Uh, Tons of other awards, including five BAFTAs it was nominated for, and four Golden Globes. It did win the Golden Globe for Best Original Score for John Williams as brilliantly performed by Jason at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> Thank you. I think John Williams would be proud. It's just another interpretation of his music. Absolutely. I think you need to get on stage with one of those uh, orchestral performances of John Williams music. <laughs> and me and Bobby McFerrin could just uh, acapella it together. Absolutely. Um, and critics were mostly positive about this film. Although, as always with with some like classics like this, it's interesting to see where some critics were not as positive. But uh, to start off with something very enthused, uh, Roger Ebert said, Steven Spielberg's Jaws is a sensationally effective action picture, a scary thriller that works all the better because it's populated with characters that have been developed into human beings we get to know and care about. There are no doubt supposed to be all sorts of levels of meanings in such an archetypal story, but Spielberg wisely decides not to underline any of them. This is an action film content to stay entirely within the perimeters of its story, and none of the characters has to wade through speeches expounding on the significance of it all. It's a clean-cut adventure without the gratuitous violence of so many action pictures. It has the necessary amount of blood and guts to work, but none extra. And it's one hell of a good story, brilliantly told. Uh, When I was watching this time, I thought really one of the things that they did so well was like, every motivation of every character or every action was related to the story, right? Mm -hmm. Like there was no kind of uh, B plot or anything like that. And I think it just really ratcheted everything up to the degree that we know it to be in this thing. It it was just like you said, it contained to Amity Island and, uh, and the paranoia and, uh, and fear that comes along with this. Right. Yeah, they did. You're right that there's essentially no subplots or anything. One major thing that they did change from Peter Benchley's novel, which is the what this movie is based on, and Benchley himself wrote early drafts of the screenplay, was apparently an affair between uh, Matt Hooper, character played by Richard Dreyfuss, the oceanographer, and the wife of Martin Brody, the police chief played by Roy Scheider. They, they have an affair and I don't know how that worked in the book, but I mean, they, I don't even know if they they barely speak. They have a one that one scene where he comes over and, and they have dinner or whatever. But I don't think that would have made any sense in the context of the way the movie goes. Right. I mean, I guess the point would be like, hey, they're out on the ocean together tracking this shark and there's they have nowhere to go but to face each other. So right. they have to stare down that conflict. 
But um, one of the crazy things about this was like, you're mentioning the script, but there was like, you know, there's that famous quote, like we had no cast, we had no shark, we had no script. Uh, by the time this was in production, Carl Gottlieb, who's, you know, an actor in this also, was basically writing the script as the production was going. Right. Which is perhaps another way that this movie anticipated the modern blockbuster, where you read, you read this, I feel like about half these major, you know, $200 million plus movies where they're like, yeah, we didn't really have a script when we started. And you'd think that that would be the first thing you would lock down. But so many of these movies, especially they're built around action sequences, right? And sometimes I think directors like Michael Bay, they come up with these big set pieces first and then they they write some connective tissue between them later. So it worked out very well here, though. I know it's crazy how it did, because, you know, as we know, the shark, you know, doesn't work most of the time. And and that's why Spielberg chose to shoot it. Like, you know, uh, he references Hitchcock, where like you're less is more. You're letting the imagination of the viewer think about like what a scary monster this is. Right. And of course, that's a very, very famous aspect of this movie now that was obviously like a great choice. And it's fascinating to know that that was necessitated by that. I mean, you have to wonder, obviously Spielberg is incredibly talented, but you have to wonder like if they'd had the shark working, the animatronic shark working perfectly from the start, what would this movie have looked like and would it have been as effective? I'm going to say no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, usually when we see like, uh, I mean, I guess it could go either way because it is a shark. So it's an animal that we know, right? Sometimes you see like a monster movie and then they reveal the monster and you're like, oh, that, okay. Yeah. But you know, it's it's a shark. So it is uh, a shark. And there's there's in addition to that animatronic shark, there is uh, real footage of great white sharks that was shot in Australia by Ron and Valerie Taylor, who were uh, lifelong conservationists and, and put out a lot of documentaries about sharks and, and undersea life. And that's an important contribution here as well. Yeah, I, uh, you know, when they were building the shark, they said that they were trying to train a great white <laughs> You know, like a show pony or something like that. And <laughs> yeah, shockingly, that didn't come to pass. Clearly not the way to go. So uh, Pauline Kale in The New Yorker said in Jaws, which may be the most cheerfully perverse scare movie ever made. The disasters don't come on schedule the way they do in most disaster pictures. And your guts never settle down to a timetable. Even while you're convulsed with laughter, you're still apprehensive because the editing rhythms are very tricky and the shock images loom up huge right on top of you. There are parts of Jaws that suggest what Eisenstein might have done if he hadn't intellectualized himself out of reach, if he'd given in to the bourgeois child in himself. It's not only the visual techniques of Jaws that are different. The other big disaster movies are essentially the same as the pre-Vietnam films, but Jaws isn't. It belongs to the pulpiest sci-fi monster movie tradition, yet it stands some of the old conventions on their head. Eisenstein, we're really, we're really digging deep into film history today. Uh, that's the Russian filmmaker who would show an image and then show um, a frame of someone looking at the image. And um, the reaction was always the same, but because of the image, that was shown before it, people the, in the audience would think like, oh, he's sad because, you know, he sees a hungry cat or he's happy because kids are playing or whatever it is. So uh, j just chalking up a little film history here, Pauline Kale, we're with you. Yeah, Sergei Eisenstein, I think, is his 
director of Battleship Potemkin, right? That sounds right. Yeah. I mean, the like the inventor of like modern film editing, the everything that we think of as the way films are put together. So well, and and the the editing here is so important, right? Right. And I think that's what she's pointing out here is that, you know, as someone who has created that style, that the technique of modern editing, if he had uh, decided to make a shark movie instead of a serious uh, Russian political drama or whatever might have come up with Jaws. I don't think there are any sharks in Russia as far as I know, but I could be wrong there. I think uh, Russia Sharks is definitely a B-movie that I'm uh, going to end up seeing probably. <laughs> Russia Sharks. <laughs> I don't know. Soviet That's Sharks. Funny. Soviet Sharks is a better title. Yeah, yeah. well, it would be like if you could do like a USSR, right? Oh, like, yeah. you know, USS Shark. Right, right. United Soviet Sharks of Russia or something sure. like that. I've, <laughs> I've seen ones with worse concepts. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, Josh, just mentioned uh, Verna Fields, the legendary editor and uh, executive who edited this and um, was suggested because she also edited American Graffiti. Yeah. And and of course, I mean, uh, we, we talked about the technique of not showing the shark. And as much as the the cinematography and the approach is important, I mean, the editing is something that's key to making that work and making that scary when you don't see it on screen. Uh, and, you know, a lot of that is, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Oh, we don't have footage of the shark. Well, let's cut what we do have. Right, exactly. So I did want to find one more critical review. Charles Champlin in the Los Angeles Times said, while I have no doubt that Jaws will make a bloody fortune, it is a coarse-grained and exploitive work which depends on excess for its impact. Ashore, it is a bore, awkwardly staged and lumpily written. If the whole project from manuscript forward has been a commercially calculated confection, the tip-off in the movie is the stubborn refusal of the key characters to come into sharp focus. Young Steven Spielberg, who was the director, shows as he has before an uncommon flair for handling big action. He and the script are much less successful in the man-to-man confrontations than in the man-to-shark meetings. Intimacy is not yet his strength. And I will disagree with that. Uh, I really thought that there is a, you know, this was the, the first movie shot on the Atlantic Ocean or on any ocean, and they went to Martha's Vineyard, I think, to create the town of Amity. And I think you get a great sense of that town and what all the characters feel about the town. I don't know... I don't don't get that at all. Right. No, I I agree with you. I just wanted to kind of include that perspective and interesting, again, to see how people were regarding this at the time. But I'm I'm with Ebert more that part of what works about this movie is that it does have well-drawn characters who we get to know before we throw them in this boat and against the shark. And it's not just constant shark attacks and gore and action. We do care about the characters, but he's not wasting time with boring character scenes where we're like, where's the damn shark attack already? You know, it's very well paced. Yeah, there's a momentum to it. And you find out about these characters like basically through their introductions, right? We know Brody, it's his first summer there. And we know that uh, the mayor played by Murray Hamilton needs the summer dollars and that Quint is a shark hunter and everything like that, you know? So we know all these things right off the bat. Right. And, and we, we get that, as you said, through their actions, you know, when they're talking about things that are related to the plot, it is still revealing stuff about their characters. And I think that's good. You Brody and his whole like fear of water. And, you know, you can tell, I feel like even in the, the, the scene that introduces Quint where it's this like very, contentious town meeting and he does this thing where he 
scrapes his fingernails on the blackboard and everyone kind of looks back at him. And you can almost just tell in the way they look at him how he's regarded in the town where I feel like in the eyes of the characters in the, in that scene, everyone's like, oh, this fucking guy. <laughs> and that's what you just you you need to know about him. Well, yeah, I would think, you know, they're like a summer beach town and they have this like uh, like out of time shark hunting, you know, uh, uh, Captain Ahab type there. I could see how they'd be like, dude, we're just trying to have a good summer. Right. Exactly. But I think that's an important aspect of his character. So, I mean, this is a major film. I assume we we had all seen before. When did you first see this, Jason? Uh, I honestly, I don't think I saw it till college when I first took a Spielberg Scorsese class. And, you know, just one of those classics that uh, you figure you're going to catch at some time. And it's uh, still great. Yeah. Yeah. I saw this, I think, at some point when I was a kid, although I don't remember it really well. And then later on, um, I think maybe like 15 years ago, I was looking on Letterboxd was the second time that I had watched it. And and at that time, I had uh, this... Uh, a fan of my work, this woman who, this old lady in New Jersey who would email me all the time about my reviews and everything. A very, very nice woman. And she was always hounding me to watch Jaws again because I think it was her favorite movie. And so in in part, thanks to her encouragement, uh, you know, because I didn't really remember it from, from when I was a child, I watched it again at that time. And uh, on my blog, joshbellhateseverything.com, I did a bunch of posts about shark movies over the course of several years related to Shark Week, where I posted eventually about all the Jaws movies and began with this one. So uh, thank you, Nina Vine. Rest in peace for encouraging me to watch Jaws again. Yeah, that's a good that's a good pick. I'm glad that she did that. Yeah. Oh, no, me too. I mean, that was obviously it's a a, you know, if you're going to have a favorite movie like that's a good one to choose. So, uh, Dave, did your parents show this to you at an inappropriately young age? I'm sure it's one of my mom's favorites. Every shark movie is one of my mom's favorites, but uh, yeah, I, I had seen it as a kid. I don't remember when, like, the last time I had seen it was until 2020. I watched it for a Breaking It Apart episode of Piecing It Together. Yeah. Does your mom watch all the ridiculous, like, uh, like Raiders of the Lost Shark and Close Encounters of the Shark kind and all that stuff? I am sure she's seen them all. If they, if they play on, like, you know, Sci-Fi Network mm. or any of those kind of things, she watches yeah, them. Yeah, nice. Those are real movies, by the way. <laughs> Spielberg really such an influence on the on the shark genre in so many different ways. Well, as we talked about while preparing, just on any animal attacks movie. Yes, that that as well. Yeah. So, I mean, like Star Wars, this is a movie that we could devote, you know, an entire season of a podcast to, but is there anything major about the background you want to mention here in addition, Jason? Uh, quote from Steven Spielberg. I thought my career as a filmmaker was over. I heard rumors that I would never work again because no one had ever taken a film 100 days over schedule. <laughs> it was a 55 day scheduled shoot and it took 159 days to actually make the movie. Wow. Yeah, that is a that is a big difference. I feel like that's a lot of the time where we read that, you know, these movies that turn out to be major classics and and hugely popular films and you hear about that and it's like oh well it was worth it it was all made sense but then you read the literal exact same things about movies like heaven's gate that are giant failures and you know it could go either way when you when it you could go it, risk. it always could yeah. you're right yeah so, so yeah all right well we'll come back then in a moment and talk more of our general thoughts on jaws
Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this season premiere of our season on the films of 1975. We are talking about box office champion Jaws from Steven Spielberg. And I don't know if we need, do we need to summarize the plot of this movie for people who may not remember? Shark, shark, beach town. Brody wants to shut it down. Mayor says, no, we, we got to have it open for the summer. Shark attacks and eats another kid. And uh, now we got to we got to go on the ocean and get that shark. It's uh, Roy Scheider and uh, Sir Richard Dreyfus, <laughs> And of course, our friend Robert Shaw as the three shark hunters here. One's an ecologist, one's a shark hunter and one's the sheriff. Yes. Who's afraid of the water, like you said. He is. And we never I was waiting for some sort of like big reveal about why Brody is afraid of the water, like some specific traumatic event. But we never really get that. He just kind of doesn't like it. And then, you know, of course, he has to go on the boat and he manages to do okay. Yeah, I guess like, look, I'm not going to criticize anything, but you could always (laughs) be like, hey, why is Brody up in this small beach town? Like what didn't work out for him in New York? And, you know, how did he get sent to the one place where he uh, wouldn't be as effective because he's afraid of the the natural landscape there? Right. Well, I didn't get the impression that he was sent there. I mean, they seem to talk about that they chose to go there. I mean, he does make some reference to the idea of there being so much crime in New York that you can't accomplish anything as a police officer and they chose to come somewhere. Right. I'm just saying if you wanted to ratchet up an internal conflict, you could have gone that route. Right. That's it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's okay to criticize. You know, it's not necessarily a perfect film or even if it is, that doesn't mean that that we can't, you know, have some sort of... I'm not anti-criticism. Yeah. I'll criticize you all day long. Oh, thank uh, you. <laughs> I just, I just feel like this uh, movie is pretty darn good. There's not much in there to criticize. I mean, it is, it is pretty darn good. Definitely, I feel like this is one of those movies that, you know, and we've probably talked about this with some classic films where, especially if you haven't seen it before, it's been parodied and homaged and whatever so many times in the various famous lines and famous scenes that it's, it's hard to come to it fresh. And I feel like even having seen it a few times now, it's, you know, there, there's, there's not as much, um, impact from some of the, the cool stuff in it because it's, you know, so familiarized and and chewed over and whatever. And also because there are so many other shark attack movies now and very, very bad ones, many of them, but even the good ones have sort of lessened the impact of this movie, I think. I guess you could say that from a story standpoint, from like a, a geek tech standpoint, there's always something to watch. And you're like, oh, man, what a what a shot here. Or look at what he did here. And, you know, Spielberg is such a master craftsman. It's always just fun to even watch how he's utilizing the craft to further the story. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's not fun to watch or that I don't enjoy it because I do. And I enjoyed watching it again after, you know, 15 years or whatever. And I think that was. It was it was still fun. I mean, and it's an entertaining movie. You know, now I think Spielberg is this filmmaker who is sort of so canonized that a lot of his films, even if they're blockbuster type movies, were like, oh, this is a major event and this is so serious. But, you know, this is still just it's a piece of entertainment and it's a really effective piece of entertainment. But, you know, Spielberg was not Spielberg when he made this film, but he still does a great job with it. Yeah, I saw this. Uh, I was watching the documentary. uh there's a thousand documentaries on the making of this yes. thing, right? And what went wrong. Anyway, they interviewed Daryl Zanuck, you know, the producer, and they were like, before they made this movie, they're like, hey, 
Spielberg, are you just trying to help his career out? And he's like, no, I'm trying to help my career out by working with him. You know, he just kind of had it even back then that he knew that Spielberg was like the wonder kid. It's called The Shark is Still Working, Josh. The documentary. Yeah, that's yeah. Um, I haven't seen that. There was the DVD that I got had a, an older, like shorter, non-feature length documentary on it that I uh, did not watch. <laughs> that, thank that, you josh that's the thank you for telling us yeah no i mean that's that's be, i think in part because that movie that you're talking about is like the one that is like the definitive documentary about the making of this film um mm. so that's the one to watch if you if you do want to learn more about the making of jaws but yeah i mean even even spielberg even if he's not like the a wonderkind or whatever i mean one of the only movies he made prior to this that was successful was his his debut film Duel, which was a TV movie, but still was very popular. And, you know, I, I actually haven't seen, but I know it's it's also this kind of lean, relentless thriller about, I mean, that's the it's a trucker who's going after the main character. But I'm sure that you would watch that film and think, hey, here's a guy who can make this suspenseful attack movie like let's hire him and that's you know you don't even have to think about the the larger you know amazing talent that spielberg had well it's interesting to compare it to today i have seen duel and it's yeah like a two-lane blacktop you know kind of grindhouse type thing and uh but you know it, it, we talked about this in the last season like oh someone made a cool little indie now let's give them jurassic park or marvel right right but that doesn't mean they're going to have a point of view or hit it out of the park like he did, you know? Sure. No, I mean, I think part of the problem, though, is that a lot of times when they do that nowadays, it's like, you know, well, we were talking about that in relation to Colin Trevorrow making Safety Not Guaranteed. And that's not it's not like he made a small scale version of what a Marvel or Jurassic Park movie would be or whatever. I think you look at Duel and you can see, hey, this is basically like a more pared down version of the kind of movie that we're trying to make with Jaws. And so I think for whatever reason, directors nowadays who make smaller indie genre movies aren't the ones who get hired to make usually those big uh, blockbuster genre movies. Yeah, Zanuck had worked with him on Sugarland Express. So I think that's where he kind of was pulling that idea of like, hey, look, this dude is super talented and everything. So um, and uh, you know what, Josh? He is super talented. He is. Yes. This was a risk that paid off for everyone involved of course. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about the alternate casting, which you sure, enjoy, but uh, sure, we can talk about that. There are so many ideas here, right? You know, Robert Duvall, they asked him to come on board, but he would only wanted to play Quint, which would have been interesting because Duvall's amazing. Right. You know? I but, feel like maybe Duvall, we think of him as that grizzled old character actor or whatever. But, you know, he was, of course, much younger here. I don't know if he would have had the same level of uh, experience that, that we get from Robert Shaw. Yeah, and uh, 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 Charlton Heston wanted to play Brody. That would have been odd. Yeah. Get your hands off me, you damn dirty shark. <laughs> <laughs> Lee Marvin, your boy Josh yeah. and Sterling Hayden, considered for Quint. And uh, Hooper could have been anyone from John Voight, Timothy Bottoms, Jan Michael Vincent. Shout out to Jan Michael Vincent, Josh. Sure. And uh, Kevin Klein, Joel Gray, and Jeff Bridges. Some good ones in there. Yeah. Um, what I had read is the Dreyfus character, you know, they kind of made that into Spielberg's alter ego and, you know, kind of push that. But I, I, when researching Robert Shaw, you come across like all these crazy stories. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, here, this is just a quote from Wikipedia. So Shaw also fled to Canada whenever he could due to tax problems, engaged in binge drinking 
and developed a grudge against Richard Dreyfus, who was getting rave reviews for his performance in Duddy Kravitz. That was the movie that he did prior to Jaws. Richard right, Dreyfus. which he thought was going to bomb, and that's why he took Jaws. Right, and and I mean, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with that Duddy Kravitz movie at all, but whether it bombed or not, obviously Jaws was the right choice for him after this, and uh, and he's great, and I do like the way that they make it. That character is very distinctive, you know, because he's this like super nerd, and you re- you learn a little later on that he's also like very wealthy, that he finances all his shark expeditions himself or whatever. But he's perfectly capable when they get out on the water. You know, Quint is like mocking him relentlessly about being this coddled rich kid or whatever. But he's he's just as capable on the water as Quint is, you know, because he's very dedicated to what he's what he's doing, even if he comes at it from a very different background. So I like that there's the contrast between those characters. But I like that there it's not I feel like a movie now might be like, oh, hey, nerd, how you doing here out on the sea? And he'd be like seasick or something. And there's none of that. Yeah. And I mean, if, if it was going to be anyone, it would have been Brody, who's not sea ready. Right. right. But there is that great scene where the three of them are like having their bonding experience and singing, you know, old sea shanties type songs and comparing injuries that they got on the sea. So um, I thought that was a, was a good scene, you know, to kind of. Just give you that palate cleanser before the, you know, because it comes back uh, where the shark is there again. And and um, just to kind of showcase the relationship between these guys. Right. They do. Eventually, they kind of develop this friendship, whereas they're I mean, Hooper and Brody kind of become friends almost instantly. And they're they bond over the fact that they're like the only ones who are taking this shark attack seriously while everyone else in town wants to just get back to the normal activities, especially the mayor the Murray Hamilton character. Um, But, you know, Quint resents both of them and and really says that he wants to go out on his own and do this without them. And so they do make form that bond in that scene. And 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 it's good because it's you know, it's one of those scenes. And I feel like it's a cliche in horror movies now, but maybe less so where it's like the scene of the characters having a good time and they're they're singing those songs, like you said. And we know that it's going to be interrupted by the monster returning, basically. Right. And there's right. there's a nice progression of as they're singing and we hear the like bumping of the shark and Spielberg shows us the close ups of the the boat shaking or whatever. And kind of one by one, they stop with the songs as they realize what's going on. And I think is Quint first and then Hooper, and then Brody's the last oblivious one, not realizing as he continues to sing that something's going on. And, you know, that's revealing about character as well. Yeah, I mean, for them to have written this on set and for it to turn out as well as it did is is pretty incredible. Right, yeah. I mean, and there is a a lot of dialogue and stuff that, 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 uh, you know, works here. It's not just we had to write a couple lines in between shark attacks or whatever. I mean, there's this whole, the whole famous monologue that Robert Shaw delivers about being on the USS Indianapolis that uh, I guess there's, uh, you know, differing accounts of who really wrote that whole thing, but whoever it was like it worked really well and it's compelling to watch him deliver it. And it also reveals a lot about his character. So um, yeah, whatever, whatever they did, it it worked. That is why you are the film critic, Josh, because of, (laughs) Real tight analysis Thank like you. that. Thank you. Dave, have you ever heard this score? I mean, I, I think so. <laughs> it's, is yeah, this, I mean, is it's, this the most famous it's one score of, the of all time, Dave? I think it probably is. I mean, you know, I mean, is John Williams the most famous composer of all time? Yes. And is this his most famous score? Probably. Yeah. 
Yeah, I feel like maybe the the psycho, which has a similar kind of staccato thing, might be the only other sure. one I can think of. Like what was the Star Wars song? No, I mean Star Wars maybe, is up there. but I feel yeah. like Star Indiana Jones. Yeah, I mean or... all John Williams, but I feel like like Indiana Jones and Star Wars. There's just like a lot of different themes that are all familiar, and it's kind of the totality of it. But with Jaws, it's that two note thing that everyone knows right. instantly. It's so simple, which is perfect because, you know, it's just a shark, basically. Right. So it like just fits so perfect being so simple and natural. Yeah. 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 Uh, Williams said of that theme, he was trying to get it to grind away at you just as a shark would do. Instinctual, relentless, unstoppable. Yes. And, and obviously it works. I mean, I don't think there's anyone who would say anything negative about that. And, you know, again, going back to the lack of on-screen shark, we, you know, the editing, the cinematography, the score is another thing that really conveys the danger and the scariness of that when you're not able to see the shark on screen. Uh, everyone just kind of somehow ratcheted up their game on this one, even though it was chaotic, right? You were mentioned the cinematography. Bill Butler, the cinematographer, actually had to create new equipment so you could get those underwater shots. And um, just really, just, it was cool that, Somehow they all convened and they were like, oh, this thing's a disaster, but the greatest disaster ever made on film, right? Right. Yes. Uh, I thought this was interesting, Josh. Uh, Spielberg asked the art department to avoid red in scenery and wardrobe so the blood from the attacks would be the only red element and cause a bigger shock. And that reminded me of what he did so effectively in Schindler's List with the little girl in red and that just kind of you know, breaks your heart when you see the result of that. Right, right. When she got eaten by a shark. That was not what happened. I haven't in seen Schindler's, I haven't seen List, Schindler's List, so I just assume that that's what happens in it. <laughs> oh, man. Well, yeah. Josh Bell is uh, the film critic of note on this uh, show here. <laughs> yeah. What credibility is left for us? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 that's a big blind spot for me. But I feel like that's what I'm sure it's great. But that's one of those movies where. It's like, unless there's a, if we do a podcast on it or something, but otherwise, if I'm like, I'm going to watch a movie today, I'm going to watch this like nearly three hour Holocaust movie. It just never, it just never comes up. I mean, it's there for you if you want to watch it or be a completist I mean, or see right. a best picture winner or watch a masterpiece film or whatever you want. Josh. Right. There no, I know it's there. It. I just mean it never, it never sort of like is the, is the top of mind choice to like relax and watch a movie with. Yeah, you are too busy watching like, uh, you know, Shark Alien mm -hmm. 9 or something mm -hmm. like that. Totally. Yes, I have recently watched Sharkula. But uh, see, uh, there you go. It was, for, it was so. for an article. It was for an article. Was that better or worse than Sharkenstein? I haven't seen Sharkenstein, but uh, I have seen Sharkula. So is Sharkenstein a real thing? I just oh, yeah, I believe they're from because, the same director. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So. Is there an Amityville shark um, movie? Yeah. There is an Amityville yeah. shark movie, but sadly it's not titled Amityville shark. It's titled Amityville Island. But I've seen that. Oh. That is, in fact, yeah. from the same director as Sharkula. <laughs> so really, Josh, why didn't all you get that? together here? You should have got that guy on the podcast here, Josh, <laughs> yeah. since you know so much about yeah, him. Yeah, Mark Polonia. I think he's probably available. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, Jason, I realize that this movie is... A classic is is one of the greatest movies ever made by a lot of metrics and and we all liked it but do you have any criticisms uh no josh as i said i think like i mean it's you know i'm not saying it's the the best movie of all time but like it's just a great movie so i'm good with it yeah dave did you enjoy it that much as well 
Kind of. Yeah. Like I, I felt the same way where it's like, what am I really going to, you know, say about this movie? It's just a fun watch. Like, I, I guess I could, you know, say it's a little slow at times, maybe, but it's kind of not like it's just like a solid, fun action movie. Yeah, it does. I mean, you know, it's it's not 90 minutes or whatever, but it doesn't necessarily feel slow or it doesn't feel like it's ever poorly paced. I mean, I think all the shark attacks are sort of. uh doled out throughout the movie at good intervals, right? I mean, we begin, of course, with a shark attack. And then every time there's sort of a lull, it's like, oh, remember the shark is here and is attacking. Yeah. And so I did appreciate that. And it was interesting to me, the pacing too, where it's like two thirds of the movie or so we're on the island. We have all these various characters. I mean, we have Brody and Quint and Hooper, but we also have the mayor and we got Brody's wife and we have various townspeople who have their own perspectives. And then they just all disappear. And the movie is just these three guys on the boat and it doesn't really shift back. And I, I mean, I don't think that's bad. I just thought that was an interesting structure. Mm. Uh, I, I think, you know, again, it's, is this because of the necessity of what was going on? Because, hey, now we can actually shoot this. So let's be out here. And because they were, like I said, the first production to ever shoot on an ocean. Like, was it just a learning experience or was it, hey, from a story standpoint, we're going from wide to narrow, and now it's all got to be about these guys versus the shark. Right. Yeah, I don't know that that was a necessity thing. I think I saw something from Spielberg talking about how, you know, they made all these changes to Benchley's book, but the the part where it's just the guys on the boat versus the shark, like he really wanted to keep that all intact. So maybe that's how the book is structured as well. Yeah, I don't know. I do know that Benchley didn't think when he wrote it that they would even be able to make a movie like because one, he didn't expect the book to be what a hit it was, but also um, because he didn't think the technology was there. Right. Well, and apparently it wasn't or they had to kind of invent it to make it be there. They did invent it. Yeah. yeah. So I, I will say, honestly, this time I found Quint kind of annoying that um, not that Robert Shaw is bad, but I feel like some of the stuff you're maybe supposed to root for in his like saltiness. And is like, I know better than everyone. I was like, shut the fuck up, dude. You don't know better than everyone. And I kind of liked it when he died. Mm, yeah, Josh, you definitely know more about um, shark hunting than he does. Not me, but Hooper. You know, uh, well, Hooper is not a shark hunter. Josh. He's not He's a shark a hunter, but he is a shark expert. Yeah, I don't know. All I right. guess I just it's not that I didn't believe that he knew what he was talking about. It was just, you know, the character is this guy who doesn't he's very stubborn and he doesn't have any interest in hearing anyone else's perspective. And I don't know. I just found that slightly grating at times. Shaw based his performance on fellow cast member, Craig Kingsbury, a local fisherman, farmer, and legendary eccentric who played Ben Gardner in this film. Oh yeah. Who ends up in a, in a great scare, like jump scare moment where you see his dead body. Floating body. Yeah. yeah. That's a good moment. Josh, like you said, we could probably, you know, do a whole season on this thing, but uh, I think we've kind of uh, given our, our, you know, overall feelings on it. Uh, you believe you're a better shark hunter than Quint character. Dave and I like the movie. Should we rate the thing? Yeah, let's do it. You want to rate it out of five shark attacks? What? I know. I'm so creative about this episode. <laughs> which, yeah. are, which are good things, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh four shark attacks for me yeah just the uh, i could watch it again next week All great right. movie uh I, i'm gonna give it three and a half shark attacks i i think it's very good it's certainly an important movie to see 
I don't necessarily love it, but I appreciate its brilliance. So that's that's the kind of the highest I can go. Dave? I'm going with four shark attacks. It's it's a classic. It is a classic. Yeah. I mean, if, if you haven't seen Jaws, certainly see it. I can't imagine anyone will be dissatisfied mm. really with Jaws, but you know. Also watch Sharkula. No, don't watch Sharkula. Sharkula is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, Josh, maybe we could talk about some of the good animal attack movies in our next segment. Indeed. We'll come back and talk about the legacy of Jaws. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1975, we are talking about box office champion Jaws. And I feel like just as much as we could spend an entire season talking about all the techniques and everything in this film, we could certainly spend an entire season unpacking the legacy of Jaws. Um, As we talked about earlier, this is the beginning, really, of the blockbuster film and the way that blockbusters are marketed and released. And thanks to the success of this movie, we have uh, shit like Michael Bay movies. Well, you know, it's I think back of that uh, joint speech that uh, Spielberg and Lucas gave at USC maybe a few years back where they're like, we're getting to the point where movie theaters are just going to be big box office events and you're going to spend 50 bucks and you could see something like Jaws, but you couldn't see a Sugarland Express in there, right? So it's interesting that he's like raging against the machine that he helped create. Right. Well, I mean, you know, to be fair, it's not like he foresaw all that when he made this movie or that he was even in charge of how the movie was released or marketed. But uh, but yeah, you know, and more than that, they're both champions of all types of films. So I think they they want to add the variety out there. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I don't think we we can blame them necessarily for that. We can blame, uh, you know, the Russo brothers or Marvel. Yes. Some other people. Something like that. Josh, uh, which uh, I, I watch Piranha specifically because I saw a quote that Spielberg said that of all the animal attack movies, uh, that ripped off Jaws. That was his favorite. Sorry, Dave. No mention of Cocaine Bear. Um, yeah. Well, it hadn't but, come uh, out yet when he said that. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he couldn't have predicted that one either. Piranha's pretty fun. It's a, you know, we've talked about Roger Corman and John Sales, who wrote it, Joe Dante directed it. It's a fun little movie. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to see it. And I mean, there were a bunch of, you know, that that legacy goes on to this day with stuff like Cocaine Bear, obviously. But, you know, in the immediate aftermath of Jaws, there were a bunch of those animal attack movies that were released in the next few years, uh, including um, Piranha, as you said, Grizzly, Orca, uh, Alligator, which was also written by John Sayles. I mean, all of those coming out in the next like five years after this film. And um, I haven't gotten to those. I've seen the remake of Piranha that was directed by Alexander Asia, which is kind of fun. Um, but Dave, I think, didn't you see Alligator? Uh, yeah, I watched Alligator just recently, and uh, that that was pretty fun. Um, I also love that remake of Piranha, by the way. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole sort of cottage industry that sprung up after this. And I mean, not only those specific, those ripoff kind of animal attack movies, but of course, Peter Benchley, whose whole career as a novelist was about like undersea adventure and animal attack type movies. There were numerous Peter Benchley adaptations, starting with The Deep in 1977, which also featured Robert Shaw and um, is not mainly a shark attack movie, although it does have one shark attack scene. I've uh, I've seen that film, which is not great, but it does have an opening uh, sort of like 10 minute scene featuring Jacqueline Bissett, the star, 
uh, diving underwater in a very see-through shirt. And that was a big part of its success, I think. Well, Josh, I can't say the same thing about uh, Piranha, which featured Murray Hamilton as a Texas uh, kind of businessman. No see-through shirts on him. Man, what a shame. But yeah, I did love looking at the the list of Peter Benchley adaptations that came over the next like 20 years. The Deep, The Island, The Beast, Creature. You know, he really he really knew what his market was. He got it. He got it right there. Uh, Spielberg, Josh, we've talked about before. Right now, working on a John Williams documentary, a remake of Bullet or a modernization of it and a uh, limited series about Napoleon. I uh, think all three will be great. Yeah, I think we talked about that Napoleon thing in one of our Kubrick episodes, right? Because it's a it's an adaptation of Kubrick's planned Napoleon film that he never made. Uh, it all comes together. Yes. Yeah. A lot of these people involved in this we've we've talked about before. Uh, check out our episode on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. We talked about Spielberg there. We talked about Richard Dreyfuss as well, who, of course, you know, went on to be a major star, even more so uh, Oscar nominations for The Goodbye Girl, which we also have an episode on. And Mr. Holland's nominations, Harris. sir. I won. <laughs> true. True. I'm sorry. I, I was gonna I was gonna pause there and say we we give you the chance for your Richard Dreyfus impression. Nah, we're good. Sure? Roy Scheider, of course, we did all that jazz. Yeah, you know, that's my Roy Scheider. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. That that that's good. Yeah, um, pretty good. We even talked about Marie Hamilton in our episode on The Graduate, but he was a very prolific character actor before and after this um, for the rest of his career. Three Robert Shaw movies to check out. The Sting, A Man for All Seasons, which he got an Oscar nomination for, and the very cool 70s uh, train heist film, The Taking of Pelham 123. Yeah, I like The Taking of Pelham 123 a lot. Yeah, this was toward the end of Robert Shaw's career. He died in 1978. Uh, although he did make several more major films after Jaws, including The Deep, Black Sunday, and Robin and Marion. I haven't seen those other two, but those were pretty big, successful films. So uh, a major career. And obviously, as Jason, as you were talking about, quite a quite a colorful life that he had. Yeah, I like reading about him. It's fun to uh, see all the things that he's done. Zanuck, we uh, might have mentioned on our on our little episode about Driving Miss Daisy, which he produced. He was a legendary producer. And Carl Gottlieb co-wrote The Jerk. Oh, yeah, nice. And uh, he's, you know, quite versatile. As you said, he plays the newspaper reporter here in addition to having been the 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 other credited writer along with Benchley on the script and seemingly have done the most writing of among all the various people. Jason, I know you have not seen any of the Jaws sequels, but uh, I have, and you are smarter than me on that front. <laughs> Just in general, Josh, so I true. think we can agree. Yeah, yeah. I will say that Jaws 2, which does feature Roy Scheider in a contractually obligated performance, which is the best kind of performance. <laughs> yeah. Um, is not, Actors always come in so happy to work. Yeah. When that's the reason. Yeah. It's not that bad. I mean, it basically rehashes the plot of this movie, but um, it is, as far as those sequels go, the most respectable one. It's back on Amity Island and there's more shark attacks and Brody is once again the only one who is... Uh, convinced that there's some danger here and he goes out in that case he goes after the shark by himself because the other characters are not around anymore um jaws 3 which was released in 3d i wonder if our friend uh tony strauss is a fan of jaws 3d if he's got that one on a 3d blu-ray but it's very very bad and essentially has no real connection 
to the Jaws franchise, it has Dennis Quaid as the grown-up version of one of the Brody kids who now works at SeaWorld, where there are some shark attacks. And mm. um, of course, the fourth film, Jaws the Revenge, is infamous as like one of the worst movies ever made. And that featured the return of Lorraine Gary as Brody's wife, who travels to the Bahamas to escape Amity Island and uh, the shark follows her to the Bahamas. It's the same shark. It's well, it's weird because of course it's never actually the same shark because they always kill the shark. It's not like it's resurrected, but yeah. in Jaws, the revenge, they imply that it is somehow, if not the same shark, like the shark kid kid, or or something like that. And it has this like psychic connection to the Brody family. And it goes from Amity Island all along the way, killing Brody's as it gets to the Bahamas where, where she is with the character played by Michael Caine. Um, And of course there's that famous, I feel like one of the most famous quotes in Hollywood from Michael Caine about Jaws, the revenge, where he said, I have never seen it, but by all accounts, it is terrible. However, I have seen the house that it built and it is terrific. <laughs> yeah, that's a great Classic. quote. Yes. Huh, Josh, have you ever had um, cinematic neurosis? Cinematic neurosis. What, what is a that? condition in which viewers exhibit mental health disturbances or a worsening of existing mental health disturbances after viewing a film. The symptoms first presented as sleep disturbances and anxiety, but one day later, the patient was screaming sharks, sharks, and experiencing convulsions. Is this real? I feel like this is just like if you watch a horror movie and you have a nightmare. I didn't know there was a title for it or something. I'm just wondering because I was reading about that and I was reading about the Jaws effect where a bunch of like fishermen were like, ah, we should just go kill sharks because of the movie Jaws and they help diminish the world's shark population. Right. I mean, that is one of the real effects of this film that that Peter Benchley in particular has talked about and has said that he regrets is that this made people think that sharks were all dangerous and needed to be killed. Um, And also in particular, Ron and Valerie Taylor, the like oceanographers who shot the real footage of sharks in this film, they really regretted their contribution to that. And there's an interesting documentary called Playing with Sharks about Valerie Taylor that I think is on Disney Plus that I've seen. And she talks a lot about that. And basically she spent her entire life dedicating herself to the preservation of sharks uh, in part Mm. to sort of make up for her contribution to Jaws. Well, that's Hollywood for you, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what to say. I mean, you know, hopefully cocaine bears won't become extinct because of that film. Dave is going to uh, spend the rest of his life uh, working on the preservation of cocaine. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Dave, does your mom have a favorite ridiculous shark movie beyond Jaws? Do you know? Well, not a shark movie, but I know she loves Orca. Um, and she also loves Jaws the Revenge. So what are you going to, you know, what can you do? Okay. Well, we can we can forget about her <laughs> taste at all. There. Um, Whatever, Josh. You're 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 here giving us reviews of Sharkula in the middle of our I'm Jaws not trying thing. to tell you that Sharkula is good. <laughs> I'm trying to tell you that it's bad and you shouldn't watch it. But no, there are some good later shark movies. I mean, The Shallows with Blake Lively. I think uh, Deep Blue Sea is uh, really, I mean, it's totally ridiculous, but really entertaining in its ridiculousness. Uh, both 47 Meters Down movies, I think, are really effective and really suspenseful. So there are good shark attack movies. It's just they're far outweighed by the terrible ones. Well, that does it for this episode of Awesome Shark Year. <laughs> and, uh, I think uh, we wrap this thing up right here, Josh, huh? 
Yeah, I feel like we should mention you. You briefly mentioned that uh, that stage production, "The Shark Is Broken." Oh, right. Oh. There is uh, there's also a musical called Bruce, uh, written by Richard Oberacker and Robert Taylor, who are uh, Vegas guys. I feel like we should uh, give them a shout out. They uh, wrote the musical Bandstand as well, and they've been involved in stage productions here in Vegas. And uh, that's a musical about the making of Jaws. Well, the shark is broken. Is going is also about that, and that's going to Broadway. That was written by Joseph Nixon and Ian Shaw, and Ian Shaw, Robert Shaw's son, is starring in it. I believe as his father. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, Bruce, the other one from the, from our hometown heroes, sadly, uh, not going to Broadway. But I mean, really, is there room for two Broadway plays about the making of Jaws? Let's find out. Yeah. Um, I did also briefly just want to mention how this movie, you know, kind of had added resonance during the response to the COVID pandemic and a lot of people talking about how Murray Hamilton's character, the mayor, is emblematic of the way that politicians reacted to, to COVID, uh, sadly. We but, need your summer dollar. Right, exactly. I mean, you saw that footage of like people on spring break in Florida, right, as, as the pandemic was first spreading. And I think a lot of people connected that to the, the beach footage in Jaws. And uh, of course, you know, election related to people always talk about how the, the mayor is still the mayor in Jaws, too. So, uh, you know, <laughs> make sure to vote. That's that's all I wanted to add there. Fair enough, sir. So that is Jaws. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can uh, attack us online and on social media. Or just sing us old sea shanties, if you will. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on all the socials or J Harris Comedy. Uh, I had an old website go for Jason. Did a shark eat it? Maybe. Mm. But my new website, Eat This Comedy, is also an Instagram. That's up. You can find me on Letterboxd at Go For Jason. We're at awesomemovieyear.com uh, and Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. And uh, I always uh, knock my website, joshbellhateseverything.com, but it's actually quite relevant in this episode because it has tons of posts about shark movies that I did over several years uh, related to Shark Week. I think there's probably. 35 shark movie posts or something on there, including mm. about all the Jaws movies. So check that out. Uh, I'm also at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook, at Signal Bleed on Twitter, and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also go back and listen to that Jaws episode that my mom makes a special appearance on. And of course, follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Josh, it's the first feature, another iconic film of 1975. It's Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So tune in next time for Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.